0: The doc is in and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to -to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411. 107.7
1: 107.7 The Bronx. 1077 thebronxcom Proudly nominated for the National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording um, from the remote Bronx studios at Rider University. Welcome to our program, Health411. I'm your host, Professor Jonathan Carp, The Rider University Health Studies Institute and the Rebihus Institute for New Jersey Politics presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand knowledge and perspective. This program communicates cross disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business, as well as the politics of health and healthcare. I am here today with our student producer, Mandy McLean, and our guest, John Fair, all the way from San Diego, California, where John uh, works at DARE Biosciences, and we will ask him more about that. Um, John is a successful, by a Rider graduate, and so we will hear about his story. So welcome, John.
2: Thank you, Dr. Carr. Wonderful to be here.
1: And it's great to have you uh, contributing back to where you went to college. Um, so why don't we begin by uh, you introducing yourself to our listening audience, tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you started at Rider, and how you ended up um, in San Diego in the biopharmaceutical industry.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like to call it uh, like career Plinko. If you're familiar with the <laughs> Price is Right game, where you just put the puck at the top and see where it lands. So uh, yeah, no, I got, uh, I've been very fortunate over the years. Ryder was certainly very influential and helpful along my career path. But I'm, I'm sort of a liberal artist, I guess. <laughs> it's really where I kind of started in my uh, undergraduate work and because I had a lot of broad interests. Some of which were science, but some of which were business and some of which were humanities and couldn't quite make up my mind. So liberal arts was the right way to go for me. But then uh, kind of quickly was able to pick up an opportunity in life sciences, really working on the commercial side, kind of the advertising promotional side of, of the business. So got an opportunity to kind of learn it from, you know, the marketing end. And then over my career, I've sort of slowly moved backwards uh, through, uh, kind of product development and an early stage development. So, uh, it, it's been, it's been a great experience, a great ride. Uh, I did get to California about six years ago, uh, San Diego, which is a wonderful place to live. And, and certainly in these COVID times, it's a good place to sort of quarantine. Um, and okay. yeah, it's <laughs> excited to, uh, to be part of the, the, we call it, uh, DARE, but you can say DARE, whatever you, whatever, whichever you prefer, uh, Biosciences. We really are looking to do some interesting, exciting things with women's health.
1: Well, let, let me just take a step back for any students who might be listening, um, and your back, your summary sort of said, that you know, a comprehensive, like, liberal arts business university was a good fit for you, like Ryder, what did you major in when you were a student here at Ryder?
2: Yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, again, that liberal studies kind of uh, degree was, was perfect for me, because it actually allowed me to major in a lot of things sort of broadly, and not really have to...
1: You came through the College of Continuing Studies.
2: Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, I was able to not necessarily have to kind of pin myself into a particular area. Although I will say I, I did I did take a lot of business courses undergraduate, um, a lot of finance, accounting, marketing, uh, you know, organizational dynamics, all the stuff that you know has come to you know come to come in handy <laughs> over the years. But I also did have a lot of humanities courses, philosophy courses, you know, music appreciation, stuff that you probably wouldn't. Have to take if you had sort of anchored yourself into one track or another uh, which I do think at the end of the day does help me in my role my role as you know as chief strategy officer is to really think broadly about the business and not just about necessarily the products but about the consumers about the landscape about policy so you're really integrating a lot of information and trying to synthesize a lot of things simultaneously and make it all make sense and so that that background really helped me I think
1: well, me, So as a faculty member here I, I hear almost, almost any time I'm advising a group of students, I hear, what can I do with a degree in dot, 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 right? And so, if, so if somebody, you're laughing. So if somebody asked you, you know, you're out in the, in the real world, to the business world, what can I do with a degree in, in your case, liberal studies, biology, behavioral neuroscience, whatever you pick, how would you answer that as somebody who, so I've had a broad interest
2: yeah no that's I think it's a great question um, you know I, I think it's first is get the degree do well you know do well try to try to come out with a, a good GPA and, and some you know accreditation uh, if you can so so study hard and, and get good grades and then I think you know when you kind of get into the marketplace especially if you're not going in hard science like if you're not going to bench top uh, kind of research and development or if you're not going into accounting and finance there are a lot of opportunities you know in life sciences um, that don't necessarily require you to have that hard science background, so you could get into you know you could become a sales rep, you could work at an advertising agency or a communications agency, you can get a, a lot of experience and exposure to the industry coming at it from a different perspective so um, I don't know that I have direct corollary advice for you, like if you get a liberal studies degree, you'll be able to do this, but you can do a lot of things I guess is my is my observation and
1: so in in your career path being yeah being more of a uh, uh, having a more broad wide approach uh, has helped you more than if you were a specialist or if you were more myopic just focused in on like what is my you know yeah like if, if you were a let's say a biochemistry major and all you did was biochemistry and you only thought that way um that would be a very narrow way of looking at one's career path
2: i i think so i think so but but obviously you know our chief scientific officer spent his whole life, uh, in, you know, in biochemistry, <laughs> and he's done very well, and he enjoys what he does, so I think, I <laughs> yeah, think I'm it's, uh... <laughs> I'm just saying that for
1: our career path, yeah, don't want to be so specific,
2: and specific, exactly, yeah, no, and I think what, what it did for me, what was useful for me, was it helped me figure out where I wanted to concentrate, because then, you know, for me, I went on, and got a master's degree, I've done continuing uh, education, I, you know, I went through a program at Stanford University around mergers acquisition strategy and really doing like that financial analysis and understanding how to value a company and how to value an asset and doing all the spreadsheet work that you've got to do. So it kind of helps you start, I mean, if the, the funnel is a little bit wider at the beginning and then helps you kind of narrow that down to where you want to take your career, where you want to go.
1: I did look at your sort of resume summary that's on the DARE Biosciences website and so along with, you know, Ryder University, where you've got your undergraduate degree, I so saw the University of Pennsylvania, Stanford. Um, and so another thing that's been successful to you is not just you finished college and you are done. Yeah. You know I mean, it, it sounded like you kept going.
2: Yeah, I, I kind of feel, and that's that's advice I always give, anyone asks me, that's that's the advice I give, just it's embrace continuous learning, keep going, you're never done, the undergraduate's not, you're not done, <laughs> you know, you're, you're going to have to, you're going to have to keep going, uh, and you're going to want to keep going, I think, it's just going to help you at the end of the day, and like I said, for me, you know, as I continue to emerge into this field, and get familiar with, you know, what it was, and how it worked, and what I wanted to do, and where I wanted to make contributions, it helped me narrow my focus, and then you know, informed what I did for my graduate degree and informed what i continue continued to do for, you know, additional education.
1: And so you're sort of a, a business guy in the world of science.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair.
1: And so yeah. your, t- your official title is a chief um, Strategy officer, and I pause there for effect. <laughs> I, I, I could call you chief, but um, what are you laughing? What does a chief strategy officer do in the, the world of biopharmaceuticals?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So it's really the business side of the, the business, essentially. So I work really closely with our CFO, uh, chief financial officer investor relations and working with the financial community and trying to get them to understand that what we call the value proposition which is essentially what the business is trying to accomplish Uh, i work with, with partners and try to do partnerships so out license our products get you know get big pharmaceutical companies to take our products and commercialize them i work with developers and academic institutions to in license products so you know bring new opportunities to the organization and then think broadly with the ceo about what do we want to be in the next five years and what do we need to do to get there? What does the organization have to look like uh, to accomplish those goals?
1: And, and just to connect that to what we are talking about before is like you need to understand the business, but it sounds like you also need to understand the science and the products and some of the things we'll talk about later in, in, on Health411 and other segments, but you need to understand both sides.
2: Of, you do. Of, of, yeah, to. for sure. For sure. And one of the nice things about the life science, at least my experience Uh, in life sciences world is that you can, in in biotech, is you can kind of specialize within that broad umbrella. So for us, we're in women's health. So as a non-science guy, it's easier for me to think about the women's health Therapeutic area and the and the products that are in there and the and the you know opportunities that are in there. Then to try to think about you know the human system writ large, you know that becomes fairly overwhelming. <laughs> but if I'm just thinking about certain certain opportunities or certain therapeutic areas that we want to address, uh, it, it gets a little easier to consume.
1: Yeah, and and I and, and I think that's part of um, what we will talk about, and that would sort of be you know your broad education and that your broad education. Um, allowed you to learn sort of how to learn new disciplines. You didn't go to college or i the willing to bet your master's degree or your, your other extra training. You didn't go to specialize in what DARE does, which is women's health products, which we'll talk about, is that you learned and you had the confidence that you could pick up the things you need to know but you had the skills to be successful in the, the on the business side. I don't mean to put words in your mouth. To,
2: to no, you you nailed it. it. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. Honestly, I mean, you kind of learn how to learn, and you learn uh, the best way to, you know, uh, kind of you know, um, aggregate information, synthesize information, and then apply information. I mean, that's really what you're doing on a daily basis in any kind of job, and it's so life science is no different. It's a little bit more technical, uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you're you're trying to need, right? You're trying to f- figure out how to deliver a product that, you know, meets a need that's currently not addressed. Um, and, and that's the goal of so many businesses out yeah. there.
1: And, and so, so I'm smiling and you're smiling because I'm saying this for any students who might be listening, who might be asking other question. you know, you know, why do I need to take this course? What am I going to do with that? Uh, and, and they're sort of missing the big picture that you're sort of uh, planting a seed for we're going to have to take a break uh, for some brief underwriting announcements at the end of this segment, but we'll be right back for a conversation with John. You're listening to Help 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronccom
0: This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Ripovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx.
1: 1077 the Bronx 1077 thebronx.com from the remote Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Hell 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Carp here with Mandy McLean, our student producer. and we are talking with John Fair from dare Biosciences out in California. and John is a writer grad um, who made his way out to California and is now in the, the world of life sciences in the biotech world and he's the chief strategy officer. Dore Biosciences. Can you tell us a little bit about what this company does? You mentioned before it's involved with women's health issues, but can you be a little bit more specific?
2: Yeah, for sure. You know, So what we've observed in the, in the marketplace is that women's health products, the women's health category, it's a really important category, tremendous amount of unmet need in the category, we believe. But what happens is now there's a little bit of pressure on big pharma to really place their bets in areas where there's going to be probably a better return on their investment and return by value return on their investment. So they're investing in things like orphan drugs, rare diseases, immuno-oncology. That's where they're really putting their research dollars. And so what we found is that there's a a gap now. So there's a lot of development happening kind of early stage in women's health, but then there's no real big pharma to kind of come in and and really accelerate those programs through the R&D process. So we saw that misalignment as a real kind of value creation opportunity where we could come in, find really interesting innovation, early stage, develop it through, you know, what we call a phase two or a phase three program, and then license it out to big pharma. So kind of really become that accelerator inside the women's health ecosystem. And the model has worked really well. We just did our first announcement with uh, Bear Pharmaceuticals earlier this year on one of our women's health programs. Uh, which was great validation of the of the business model and and ha- should have some more coming <laughs> in the future but um, but that's the idea and and these aren't necessarily like life-threatening conditions but they're really onerous conditions that really impact the quality of life for for many women and so we and feel I'm, these are important I'm gonna,
1: issues uh, I'm gonna interrupt for a little bit and just yeah. to, can you narrow that down a little bit because when you say women's health you know you and I might have an idea of what that means but for yeah. a general audience like is it like is it, you know, healthcare products that you might buy, you know, at you great know, Pharmacy? Yeah. Is it prescription stuff? Or can you be a little more specific yeah. about what you mean by that?
2: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great observation. So yeah, these are prescription products that would really address conditions like um, vasomotor symptoms as a result of menopause, for example. And these are, you know, challenging conditions where you get hot flushing and night sweats and you know, and in any sort of random moment, you know, your body temperature just uh, you know accelerates, and you start sweating, and it's it's uncomfortable, and um, it's it's really random, <laughs> unfortunately, and you know we're trying to find better ways to deliver those products to you know to just kind of smooth out those symptoms and create a better quality of life. Um, that's just sort of one example there's a, there's a variety of of conditions like that in women's health a lot of them are hormone mediated so you wind up you know kind of trying to put hormones back in safe ways and lower doses trying to deliver them in different delivery formats this is really the the focus of our company but it's you know these are these are these are conditions like I said there's not necessarily like cancer but it's you know it's all of these other persist sort of persistent you know um difficult quality of life impacting uh pro- problems that women face
1: right and your model is not so much to create these drugs or potential products too. I would think it's not just drugs, but it's it's to find pharmaceutical companies who develop these things who have decided there just isn't a you know a big enough market for you know a BMS, J and J, and then you guys will take them over and run them with the idea, to, you know, to help quality of life.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's that's. Um... That's basically right. Uh, so we actually do find a lot of our innovation from kind of either young companies, early companies. Uh, so re- not real big pharma, but kind of small emerging pharma or academic centers where they're, they've done like a proof of concept. Um, so for example, we we licensed uh, this ring technology that was initially developed out of the MIT labs. And it's just a, an innovative way to deliver um, to deliver products for women—that's really specific to women. It's not systemic, so it's not oral-based. Um, but you know, that's a technology that got to basically a proof of concept, and then needed capital and technical resources to get it further down the line. And ultimately, we're hoping that you know companies like BMS or J and J or you know fill in the blank uh, become interested and then want to take those programs in- into market.
1: So your job as chief strategy officer is it to identify those products. To negotiate the business deals for those projects, to you know get the, the the funding from the you know the people with deep pockets later on, or all of the above.
2: Yeah, it's it's all the above. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> it's all the above, and uh, and that's what's great about it. It's because you get to wear and a guy like me. I guess going back to my liberal you know studies or liberal arts background, I like to wear a lot of hats and like to do a lot of things. So, job like that's perfect for me because it I, I'm doing something a little different every day. Um, so to your point, you know, we're looking at the market landscape and figuring out you know, what does a market opportunity look like? Where are there some unmet needs? And then going back into the development community and seeing who's developing products or, or technologies against those unmet needs and then starting to talk with them about maybe acquiring that product and then actually doing the licensing, the in-licensing transactions, uh, helping to support the development of those programs and ultimately doing the, the deals, the out-licensing deals as well. So it's a, it's a broad mandate.
1: Okay. A, a, am I wrong in thinking that these quality of life issues are potentially very, very lucrative? And by analogy, I'll talk about um, um, uh, uh, Viagra for men. It's you know, Viagra for men. It was a, the, you know, the history. The drug failed as sort of a heart drug, but it was a great for a quality of life issue that improved you know the ability of males to sexually function um, when other things were not working. Um, and is that sort of like
2: the niche? Absolutely. Yeah, you've you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. And Viagra is a great example because we actually do have a program in in the company that's really it's it's essentially it's called female sexual arousal disorder, which is erectile dysfunction for women. Essentially, so what erectile dysfunction is for men, female sexual arousal disorder is for women, and we're using sildenafil, which is the active ingredient in Viagra. We're just not delivering it in an oral formulation because the oral formulation for women at the therapeutic dose is just really difficult to tolerate. That's one of the, the challenges of trying to, like, you know, just apply science to a, a broad population, not really thinking about, you know, how women differ from men. Well, so,
1: there are side effects, even with guys who take it systemically as a pill because there are visual kinds of things that can go wrong. Exactly. Are cardiovascular issues.
2: Well, exactly right. Yeah. And and so what we got excited about was our partner figured out a way to take sildenafil out of that oral formulation, put it into a topical cream that could really be applied locally. So then you avoid all those first pass metabolic issues, all that, all those systemic effects that you would traditionally get, but you get the therapeutic benefit. You get the local, you know, basically um, uh, benefit that you're looking for. So it, it was kind of the best of both worlds. And it's a, it's an exciting program. And to your point, it's not, again, it's, it's a quality of life issue. It's something that, you know, wasn't talked about a lot before there were products uh, in the erectile dysfunction side. We feel like it'll be the same for women. It's not talked about a lot. FSAD is not talked about a lot in the community until there's a product that actually addresses the issue. And then we think there's at least 10 million women out there who suffer from, you know, arousal disorder uh, and are in distress. That's kind of the criteria uh, for the diagnostic, but there's no FDA approved products. So this would be kind of a breakthrough in that in that regard.
1: Yeah, and, and so the potential for a lifestyle kind of drug is – financially is huge. It is. You
2: know, it, it,
1: yeah. it, 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 it is big. So just, uh, you're making me think too, and, and this is sort of – this could be applied to not just the, the cream that you're talking about, but do you get a lot of – or in, you know in the industry, some backlash about working for a woman's health kind of thing? Is there any – especially in today's political world – um about you know what i'm asking
2: yeah yeah <laughs> you know it's um it's interest it's it's a great question i think uh for the most part no i think for the most part people understand that you know what you're trying to do in the in the uh, development side is create new products that address unmet need they're going to, we work in a highly regulated industry right so these programs go through you know early stage development non clinical clinical programs they have to go through human tra- trials. So everything you're doing is above board. It's completely available to the public and, and to the agency. So you're not doing anything kind of behind the scenes. Everything you're doing is out in the open. And so we're, we never hide, you know, what we're trying to do or trying to accomplish. And, uh, you know, yes, you will get occasionally people who are kind of try to take shots at that, uh, you know, at this at this sort of segment. But by and large, you know, most people understand and sympathize and are excited to have new programs for women.
1: And so in a sense, um, I want to say, you know, 8, 10 years ago, um, the National Institutes of Health made a conscious effort to do more research uh, involving women and females, uh, and not just with humans, but also with animals to make sure studies were not just done on male animals but also female animals. And it sounds like, you know, Direct Bioscience is sort of a natural outgrowth of that kind of, um, you know, attention. To you know, the fifty-two percent of our population.
2: Isn't well, right? exactly right, exactly right. I mean, not only is fifty-two percent of our population, but if you look at the economics of healthcare, women make most of the healthcare decisions for the household. They, they wind up, you know, driving most of the healthcare uh, products through the household. Um, you know, they're 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 they're, or, they're essential to the healthcare ecosystem. So to ignore them, you know, is is ridiculous, and do it at your own peril. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. I, I would agree. Um, unfortunately, we're running out of time in this segment. Um, I want to ask you about uh, more about the products that your company has and things that are in the pipeline, um, but we'll do that after some brief underwriting announcements. You are listening to Help 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronxcom
0: this is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx.
1: 1077 The Bronx. 1077 the Bronx. Um, We are recording from the remote Bronx studios. You're listening to Health 411. Mandy McLean, our student producer, and I, Professor Jonathan Karp, are talking to John Fair, the Chief Strategy Officer of Dore Biosciences in San Diego, California. At the end of the last segment, I promised um, John that we would ask him about the products in women's health that are available now um, or in the pipeline. But in our brief break, Mandy said she had a couple questions. So Mandy, let's start with, with your questions. What, what, what were you thinking about listening to John?
0: So how did you get into this field? Like what made you want to do this?
2: That's a great question. And again, kind of back to my opening remarks around kind of career Plinko. You just, you, you, you kind of sometimes you go where the puck takes you. Uh, I know there's an old adage, like you want to be where the puck is going to be. Um, but in my case, it's sort of going where the puck takes me. So I actually was a consultant and had an opportunity to work with a company that actually had women's health products but they also had dermatological products they had rx products no tc products and they were really trying to figure out what to do with this portfolio of assets and that's how i got into the women's health field was we figured out there's was really a nice opportunity in the women's health side of the business to take a couple of those assets and move them into clinical development and then ultimately try to get them marketed. So um, yeah, it was just, uh, it was kind of, you know, uh, I knew some friends and and some contacts and um, and actually that company was based here in California. That's how I made my first connection out here in California.
0: Okay. And then... I remember my second question. So, Dr. Carp had asked you if you ever got any like backlash. Did that scare you before like you got into the field? Like, did you assume that you were going to get a lot of backlash?
2: Not really. And I think you know, it's um, there's kind of two worlds I think we live in. One, if you're in the life sciences of pharmaceutical development um, or pharmaceutical manufacturing world. Uh, You know, nobody who's in this ecosystem or is surrounded uh, or surrounds this ecosystem is really sensitive about uh, women's health indications or women's health products. There are some, obviously there are some issues, ideological issues that, you know, kind of collect around the edges, I would say. But, But by and large, like I said earlier, I think, you know, broadly speaking, Uh, people are supportive of of having more products available for women and being able to address unmet needs and women's health. So it's, it's really not, it hasn't really been like a lightning rod uh, in that regard.
0: Okay, I get that.
1: So can you tell us, John, um, and don't be afraid to, you know, pitch the company (laughs) a little bit. Uh, uh, What are some of the products that you guys have available and Tell us about those and then you can segue what are some of the things that are in the pipeline in the different phases of research down the path.
2: Sure, sure. Well, thanks for that, Dr. Carp. Uh, yeah, so I mean, what we've tried to do at Dari is be really disciplined about the products that we acquire or license, and they really have to meet four criteria. One is they have to be partnerable, meaning at the end of the day, if we're successful at developing this product, it has to be able to, to get into the hands of a large pharmaceutical partner to be able to, to move into the market. Uh, we like products that have a, an existing uh, data package or a proof of concept. So there's obviously some established work that's been done that demonstrates that this mechanism of action is gonna work or this product's gonna work or this formulation is gonna work. We like products that are personalized for women. So again, not anything that's oral based or systemic. So we do creams, uh, uh, different delivery technologies like gels and rings. And then we're really uh, looking just
1: just to be specific, that means, you know, so vaginally applied.
2: Exactly. Vaginally delivered. Yeah, exactly. Topically delivered or vaginally delivered
1: pills or skin creams or other kinds of things, even guys could use, but this is specific for the female.
2: Specific for the, yes, for specific. Yeah, exactly. Designed specifically for, and we call that kind of personalized for women's anatomy, which is, you know, you can you can deliver, uh, drugs through a vaginal ring where you can do a lower dose. You can do uh, uh, different durations. You can actually address a symptom or an issue uh, much differently than you'd have to do for an oral formulation. Uh, and you can do it a much more convenient way for women. So, so kind of you know, letting women's unique uh, anatomy and physiology benefit the, the drug development process, that's really one of the areas that we, we try to excel in. And so the programs that we have going on right now, we have a late stage program for bacterial vaginosis, which is a really persistent and serious infection that affects uh, actually up to 20 million women in any kind of given um, day or, or given year, I should say. But um, it, it really affects about 4 million women such that they have to go to the doctor and get something to address that issue. Now, to, to date, the cures the cure rates for a lot of the programs uh, in that in that particular diagnosis are not have not been great. So we actually found a program that showed a meaningful difference in clinical cure rate relative to the rest of the category. So we got really excited about it because it's a it's a persistent and onerous infection that that really does again impact quality of life in a variety of ways. And the agency. Uh, the FDA uh, actually gave us uh, fast track designation and qualified infectious disease product status for that program because we can and hopefully will demonstrate a superior clinical efficacy rate um, relative to what's currently available. So we're. Is that, is,
1: that a, is that a bacterial kind of treatment or is it something else?
2: It is. It is. It's actually. So it's
0: we're.
2: God. Yeah. No. So we're actually using a, a well-known, well-characterized antibiotic, which is called cl- uh, clindamycin, which is part of the lincosamide family of, of yeah. antibiotics. Uh, it's a time-course antibiotic, so it actually does well if you can if you can let it work on the underlying infection over a longer period of time, and that's what our gel technology does. It's a hydrogel technology, which is very bioadhesive, so it stays in that vaginal environment much longer. Mm-hmm. We believe it works over the course we believe it works over the course of seven days. We're gonna find that out in our phase three program. But um, you know, the, the benefit, the opportunity then is to really deliver one time dose that mm-hmm. works up to seven days that gives you a better outcome than what's currently available. And so that's
1: and it's and it's put where the infection is. Exactly and localized and I would also put for, forth the side effects that many people have with antibiotics would be significantly reduced that's not systemically in
2: the that is our hope I can't say I can't speak to that yet because we don't have the data but that is our that is our goal
1: where is that product in terms of clinical development and can and, and I'm gonna ask you and you're, you're gonna answer a phase with a number but can yeah. you also explain what those numbers what yeah seeing, one, two three something means?
2: absolutely yeah so it's a it's in phase three which is really the last phase of development before you would file for the indication so we are uh, we are in the last stage of development on that program, and actually the trial is just concluding. We think it'll be done uh, before the end of this year. We might even have the top line data readout before the end of this year, and in which case that would enable us to then file the new drug application, the NDA, early next year, and then the agency reviews that package and then they give you an approval or not, depending on you know what they decide. By the end of next year.
1: And you also mentioned that so the phase three would be a large clinical past proof of concept, is past all that stuff, past animal studies. These are a a big population of people. And I just want to point out that you mentioned that this particular product for your company is being fast tracked. and I I just want to point out for the listeners that science is still going on even in the age of COVID, and COVID is not the only thing, vaccine (laughs) development that's being fast tracked. Yeah, science is still going on. you know,
2: no, that's a great point, and, and it circles back to some of your earlier comments, which are, you know, the, these are, even though they're not life-threatening conditions, they are serious and significant, and in the, in the context of bacterial vaginosis, it's not something that you could, you know, handle from a telemedicine standpoint, so she actually does need to come in and see her provider, get a diagnosis, and then get treatment. So, in that regard, you know, COVID didn't really interrupt our program, because it's still, it's one of these conditions that has to be dealt with. Um, and, and, yeah, you're right, science continues to move on um, alongside of COVID.
1: Cool. And I, I'm sure that's not the only product that you guys are working on.
2: <laughs> no, I yeah, so the you, – you
1: could, you could pump the company. Well, out.
2: thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, so really the next, uh, the next product in our portfolio is a product called Oviprene, which is – that's the one where we did the partnership with Bayer. And that's in the contraceptive space. So that's looking at really uh, hormone-free contraception. So if you've looked at contraception broadly over the last you know, generation, uh, 30 years, it's really managed through a hormone essentially. So a hormone pill or a patch or a ring. Um, But increasingly, over the last 10 years or so, women are really starting to kind of rethink that hormone load and what hormones potentially do to them. And some have really onerous side effects as a result of taking hormone uh, contraceptive pills. So, you know, the need for non-hormonal solutions is great. And uh, right now, there's not a huge variety. So you have like the condom, which is hormone free, but it's not woman controlled, right? It's man controlled. Or diaphragm, which is not exactly convenient. Uh, Or you go to like an IUD, a copper IUD, which goes like all the way to the other into the spectrum where you've got like 10 years you know of coverage versus Mm -hmm. something on demand so there's really nothing in that what we saw is an opportunity to do something that was you know not long acting but not short acting either not something you have to do on a daily basis so we we have this interesting vaginal ring product that um, is hormone free it doesn't release any hormones it has an active it's called ferrous gluconate releases iron which uh, creates a sperm environment and it also has an, an interesting polymer Um, knitted barrier in the center, which prevents sperm from entering the cervical canal. So the combination creates a really uh, um, effective contraceptive solution without the use of hormones. Uh, And that's a program that Bear got really excited about because, you know, they're one of the leaders in contraception. They market Morena and they're looking to extend their franchise and and get into the hormone free space. So
1: this works by both being a barrier method and a spermicide method. So this is not like a doesn't have the like the controversy of like an ru-46 kind of thing which prevents implantation after fertilization occurs
2: well exactly right yeah yeah yeah, no exactly right (laughs) yeah yeah no this is uh this is so if you think about there's a. There's a uh, a product out there called the NuvaRing, which is a vaginal ring, but that uses hormones to essentially uh, suppress ovulation. This is sort of the same idea of a ring embodiment, but it actually has a, a knitted barrier in the center, which creates that barrier effect. And the ferrous gluconate creates a spermiostatic effect. So the combination of the two create a really effective, we believe, contraceptive opportunity without the use of hormones. And that
1: yeah so, so just to say the word iron shouldn't scare anybody because it's not getting into the bloodstream, um and so it's not getting in the bloodstream it's not going to get into the brain and cause you know learning difficulties or oh anything.
2: yeah they, I mean, no that's a great that's a great point yeah it's they're lo- r- extremely low levels of iron being released from the ring and they're really in concentrations that really only show up around the ring and such that they just affect Sperm motility. So essentially, they cleave, <laughs> just to get you know oh, specific, they not, cleave oh, off go. the like tails of the sperm. Can, of the
1: so, sperm. Well, please do it because we started yeah. talking about the meshing of the business and the science. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I really appreciate that you can appreciate that you can talk both.
2: <laughs> yeah. So the the spermiostatic environment created by the ferrous gluconate cleaves off the the, the the tails of the sperm. So essentially, they can't swim anymore. <laughs> And once you, you know, prevent a sperm from swimming, you've just, basically, it's, it's, it's not relevant anymore. Uh, and then the barrier itself creates an aggregated, um, uh, it, it, we call it a torturous barrier, it's a matrix, and sperm have uh, difficulty swimming, navigating it, number one, and number two, once they are damaged, anytime a sperm gets damaged, it doesn't have any ability to self-repair. So as soon as it's damaged, it's done. So the combination of the two really create the opportunity to have an effective contraceptive option without using the hormones.
1: Oh, very cool. And I, uh, and I'm sure there's more. <laughs> 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 you, want, you want to pick a, 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 um, a couple that there are another one to highlight and uh, we have a minute or two before we need to take a, a break. For sure.
2: Yeah. Second. Well, and, <laughs> and just going to the other <laughs> end of the spectrum, you know, we um, we're we're not necessarily all about, you know, not hormones or hormones. We're, we're sort of agnostic. We want to make sure we're developing the right product for the right, patient at the right time. So if she doesn't mind hormones or can tolerate hormones and, and wants to you know use a hormone method to manage fertility, we want to do that too. So we actually have a really interesting program. We call it LARC1. And LARC stands for Long-Acting Reversible Contraception. That is like, if you look at the spectrum of contraception, if you really want uh, a, a really uh, good solution, that's just short of doing something that's a more permanent solution, you know, you're gonna use a LARC and that's like an IUD or an implant. And for us, we've got this program is actually uh, being uh, co-funded with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, helping us develop this this opportunity. And it's a really neat uh, kind of digital integration of uh, a product and a technology. So it, it will have the ability to let the user turn it on and turn it off at her convenience so that she can actually yeah, manage her fertility on a much more customized basis. Because right now, if you get a lark, you have to have it inserted and then you're protected for as long as it's there. But the minute you wanna return to fertility, you have to have it removed. Uh, and then you know you have to make a decision as to what are you gonna do once you have after you have your child. So in this instance, you can just literally turn it off um, you know, return to fertility, have a, have as many children as you want, and then turn it back on. Oh and, and my God, that's fascinating.
1: Brains. So we're going to have to hear more about that. That's a yeah. fascinating idea. Sure. I'm um, sure I can see why the, the Bill and the Gates Foundation is interested in that. But we have to take a break for some underwriting announcements. You're listening to help 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronxcom
0: this is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Repovich Institute for New Jersey Politics. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Karp, only on 1077 The Bronx. Well,
1: 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronx.com, um, from The Bronx Studios. You're listening to Health411, and we are here with John Fair, Chief Strategy Officer for Dairy Biosciences, a women's health biotech life science company out in California. At the end of the last segment, um, I had to cut it off for for the underwriting, um, but John was telling us about LARC, and these are these ideas of um, women's contraceptives, which um, are are important, but these are kinds of things that can be turned on and... Turned off by the woman herself, and so I want to ask you to 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 tell us more about that, about how that might work at least conceptually. Um, I, and I also want to ask a, a follow up question, and I'll ask that right away. Is you know is contraception really a woman's issue, or is it really a you know man and women partner issue um, kinds of thing just for the area? So I'll, I'll, I'll so first tell us more about these these larks because I'm sure about that idea.
2: Yeah, no, and it, it really, we believe it's the next generation in, in kind of the LARC opportunity. So those long-acting reversible contraceptives, those LARCs, um, are really, you know, kind of the the mainstay of uh, obstetrician and gynecologists when they're looking for, so if a woman comes in and says, look, I, I really... I don't want to have a baby for the next three or five years for a long window of time, then they will, they will recommend a LARC because that gives them the, the best uh, protection. But again, as we mentioned, the challenges are it, when she does want to return to fertility and have a child, then she has to go ha- have that removed. But in this instance, as we're developing this technology, it has that digital application, the opportunity to really turn it off. So it, you don't need to have it removed every time you want to go and have a child. You just literally turn the device off. Uh, have your child and you can turn the device back on. And the idea there is just giving you much more convenience and flexibility and control. Uh, I'm
1: I'm envisioning a, an implantable device that has to be charged or has a battery or like, like a, pacemaker kind of thing but i'm a much smaller but yeah
2: yeah you're in you're you're in the the right (laughs) neighborhood you're absolutely in the right neighborhood yeah yeah and a lot of the um a lot of the technology now the medical device technology especially when it comes to battery life has evolved such that you can do a long acting device like this because of the low power requirements it would need just to release enough drug uh for a month you know just to open an aperture and release that product and have it then you know basically um uh diffuse out through the body. It doesn't, doesn't require a lot of energy, and so you can now develop devices that have this long shelf life or long life opportunities without having to have a big bulky pack you know, associated with it. Right. So the technology's gotten really great to, to miniaturize a lot of this stuff. And
1: if you could do it locally, like you know where it's going to work, well, actually, let me, let me ask you this. Is the idea that this, this, these devices, um, the long-acting contra- reversible contraceptives, would work sort of on the brain like birth control pills do? Or would they work more locally in, you know, in the uterus, fallopian tube, that kind of thing?
2: Yeah, so they work very similar to the way that your hormone contraception works, which is that they release, uh, in this case, it's levonorgestrel, which is a, you know, kind of tried and true product in the contraceptive space. Uh, And again, just to suppress ovulation and just to kind of, you know, prevent uh, um, pregnancy from occurring. So it works the same way, which is great because there's nothing we have to develop there. It's really all the development now is around the technology and the device and getting it to you know, release uh, over that longer period of time.
1: Where would one of these devices be implanted?
2: Uh, that's a great question. So we're, you know, we're in the early stages of development on this program. Um, so I don't want to necessarily say exactly <laughs> where it's going to be implanted. That's, It'll be the most convenient area.
1: So It's one of, the place, <laughs> that's one of the things that the science has to determine.
2: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And part of that is going out to users, potential users, and figuring out, you know, where if you had a device like this, where would you want it to be implanted? Would it be in the arm or some other location?
1: Oh, and I guess that's out. an important thing, because it's not like a bunch of scientists telling you. This well, is how you but, exactly. You actually do some, I guess, uh, pro- you know, what's the, when they're developing a new product, they get a bunch of people together and say, you know, what do you think about this? Would you, <laughs> does it sound convenient to you? Oh, right, right and and so so that, that sounds very exciting to me that sounds like a brand new technology and I was mentioning to you in the break um in for me in between college and grad school I worked as a lab technician for a while and it, I worked actually worked in a reproductive biology lab and back in you know those days uh, it was like you know <laughs> the the mid-1980s or ish, ish um you know we were we were doing like subcutaneous elastic implants you know right. and that was the, the, you know and you know, you put these things in, you have to do a little minor surgical procedure, but they certainly were not reversible, you know, especially in in males. I mean, but you're in the female market, um, but if you can create something that the person has control over, um, and it can allow the restoration of fertility when it's deemed appropriate, or whatever else the hormones are being used for.
0: Yeah.
1: the, The applications might be beyond that because people use you know the, the estrogen the synthetic estrogens you were mestri- mentioning not just for fertility that's the, that's like really cool
2: yeah it's so, we we really love its technology and um, and i mean to your point it, you know technology has come such a long way and and it's gotten so much better uh, and smaller and more reliable um that you know you can actually contemplate a device like this and, and not you know, feel like it's science fiction. And, and the other thing is too, we have the opportunity to maybe even look at areas outside of contraception to be able to deliver products or drugs mm-hmm. for different indications and different opportunities down the road as well. Yeah.
0: And- um, Wait, I have a question. Oh, Andy, go ahead, absolutely. How is the device gonna be turned on and off?
2: So similar to like, if you have an app on your phone, um, you'd be able to activate it or disactivate it or deactivate it, essentially. That's, that's the idea is that we'll communicate wirelessly uh, through the skin. Okay.
0: That's Very interesting. Cool.
1: Um, and thank you for sharing that. And I, I just think that's, that's really cool for, for you and your company. But it seems to me a big part of what Dore Biosciences has to do is um, not just the science. It seems to me there's a lot of increasing of awareness um, for patients, for consumers, for physicians. A whole, but it seems to me a big part of your company could just be getting the word out there. And um, um, I happen to know, you know, you and your your CEO visited at least remotely in this Zoom world, Ryder. And and so are those things sort of connected? Is a big part of your business just getting awareness that these awareness out there?
2: Yeah, no, that's a that's a great observation, and I think you know, uh, in women's health in particular, because it's not sort of top of mind. Um, you know, across the board, you do wind up having to, you know, continue to deliver the message uh, in a variety of formats to a variety of stakeholders. And yeah, we really enjoyed the opportunity to come to Rider virtually and and speak with some of the students and do the the webinar and, and had a great Uh, reception there and great audience wonderful questions and interaction Um, but it's just part and parcel of the day where you're you know you might start off the day talking to an investor trying to help them understand why this product is different from other products out in the market or what the market opportunity is and then transition to an internal discussion around the development program and then flip to a conversation with the NIH to maybe help you with funding on some, some of these programs and you know, you end the day with um, you know talking finance and, and figuring out the budget for uh, for the remainder of the quarter. So it's, you know, you're constantly um, trying to move the programs forward and and talk to as many people as you can and tell the story to as many people as you can and try to get people excited about the opportunity because it's it's an exciting opportunity.
1: Yeah, and for the right person who's excited about what they're doing, it could be a very very exciting career path. Oh, we're going sure. back to where we started for somebody who's looking for a job where you're doing, you know, working on the assembly line, doing the same thing every day. And, you, you, you know, like one of the things I say to students, and I want to ask if this is consistent, with what you're saying is like, your job really doesn't stop. Like when you leave work and go home, you know, it sounds like your brain has to continue to be engaged. You have to keep thinking, but there are people who don't want that. There are people who want, yep. you know, when they check out at whatever, you know, whatever, five, nine to five, they go home and they don't think about their job at all. This is not the world that you live in.
2: No, no, it's not. It's not. You have to be, I, I you know, I use the phrase, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable um, because every day is going to throw you a curveball that you hadn't anticipated. And you do to your point, Dr. Carp, it's, it's not a, it's not a nine to five. Um, it's more like five to nine. Um, and it's not five days a week. It's probably six or seven days a week. But, you know, if you really like what you're doing and you, uh, and, and part of, you know, success is its own reward. Like, so, you know, we started this company or Sabrina started this company, really with just some seed money from kind of friends and family and now we're you know we're publicly traded we're, we're micro cap but we're growing so you know kind of seeing success and and being part of that success is its own reward and and just you know continues to motivate you to come to work every day and, and give it your all yeah really cool
1: <laughs> um would you have advice for rider students who might be inspired by your your career journey so far what what, what might you want to say to them
2: yeah, I, you know, it's funny because it's this question came up too in the other uh, forum that we did. Um, uh, my advice was, and Sabrina's advice was, was similar too, which is, you know, uh, if you can, you know, that, that first job that you take, whatever that job is, be really good at it be great at it and, and embrace it um, because you don't ever know where that job is going to lead. You never know what kind of connections you're going to make. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, you're not going to start at the top of the ladder, but it might be the you know, the bottom of the ladder that you you want to climb, so to speak. So you know, embrace it, do a great job, add value, um, and and work hard. And uh, you know, that's that's really all I can say. I think for for me, what was helpful was I got into a role that required a little bit of kind of a sales acumen. So I ended up you know, in that sort of account management uh, strategy, consulting kind of a role where not only do you have to do the work, but you have to present it, you have to pitch it, you have to sell clients, you have to, you know, kind of make a case for what it is you're trying to do (laughs) and the need you're trying to solve. And that really, those skills become fundamental to the rest of your business career. So if you do have an opportunity to do a sales or account management role, that's a really good opportunity as well.
1: And I, want, I just wanted to add to that. that you, could, you said first job. First job is not the same thing as forever job.
2: Correct. Yeah.
1: A lot of paths. And you're a great example of somebody who went out, had first jobs, um, continued to learn on the job, but also learned formally, um, with get, getting more formal training along the way. And, um, you know, I just want to point out, you seem like a guy who's happy in his career. Am I wrong to... <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I wouldn't change a thing. I honestly would not change a thing. Uh, like I, I know it's been, I say Kerplinko, but I, I love the, the game. Um, and it's, it's great. Uh, and I've got no regrets. Uh, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow for sure.
1: And I just want to point out to any students who might be listening. Um, uh, John, who you know, lives in San Diego, works in the biotech world. You never once said, "Oh, I love this job because I'm making so, this amount of money in it." <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying money's not important, but is that is that the only motivation? Was that was that your your carrot on your tr- career trajectory? You
2: know, yeah, well, I you know for me it was so obviously yeah you know there's always a financial component to what it okay. is you're doing right. You always want to be compensated for any value you're creating, but. The ability to, to really contribute to an organization and help, and kind of put your ownership and authorship on something is really unique, and you know those opportunities are few and far between. So as they emerge, you know, take advantage of them. They might not be the best paying jobs, but you know they could be the most rewarding.
1: Absolutely, and it, and talking to students, it's a difference between just having a job and having a career.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right.
1: Well, thank you, John. This is this has been great. Um, unfortunately, we're we're at the end of this segment, but I really Thank you so much for coming on. You've
2: been a great guest. Thank you, Dr. Carr. Thank you, Mandy. Appreciate it.
1: 1077 the Bronx. 1077TheBronk.com. We're recording live from the Bronx studios. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University's efforts to bring people together to address all issues associated with healthcare. Um, I'd like to thank our guest again, John Fair from Dere Biosciences, a women's health biotech company in San Diego, California. If you have questions and or comments about this program, please email us at health411 at rider.edu.
0: That was this week's episode of Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp. Tune in every Sunday at 10 a.m. to learn truthful information about your health and the healthcare industry. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Health 411 to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. The Rider University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, underwritten in part by the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Policy. We'll see you soon, only on 1077 The Bronx.